Forgiveness is more about an inner change. We stop living in the past of the hurtful event and accept that it happened and let go of the negatives attached to it. Forgiveness is the most spoken about and the least practiced. Benjamin Franklin said, Everything that hurts, instruct. We all grow wiser from our experiences when we acknowledge the lessons learned. The process may involve you to do things which you may have never done earlier or even if you have done it, you may be asked to do it differently. Of course, it is not an easy process as you may experience a lot of unpleasant emotions in the process. This may happen as it may trigger similar emotions while you are trying to work on it. But eventually, you will free yourself from that grip and trust me, you will feel a lot more liberated. It is imperative to release your resentful thoughts and burdens so that you can create space for new experiences and emotions. If you have tried forgiving oneself or others and failed in the past, we would like to help you with a few simple guiding processes to try again. Forgiveness is widely divided into forgiving oneself and forgiving others. And though it may sound similar, it is not the same. Forgiving others is releasing toxic emotions like vengeance, resentment, bitterness, hatred, and anger. And forgiving oneself is releasing toxic emotions like guilt, shame, disappointments, unworthiness, regret, and self-loathing. How then do you forgive it? We have what we call the process model of forgiveness which we put together by asking hundreds of people how they forgive. And then we have summarized the forgiveness process into four different phases of forgiveness. The uncovering phase, the decision phase, the work phase, and the discovery phase. In the uncovering phase, we see the amount of pain we have. And oftentimes we're surprised to see how much anger we have how much preoccupation we have in thinking about the person and what happened to us. We tend to be restless and our worldview tends to become rather negative where we think nobody can be trusted if our trust has been breached by another person. After the uncovering phase where pain can be a great motivator, we enter the decision phase. And that's to make this rational, free choice decision, do I want to forgive or not? And if a person wants to forgive, we then look at the definition, what is forgiveness? You've been unjustly hurt by another, you've decided to give up resentment and to offer goodness of some kind toward the other in the form of kindness, respect, generosity, or even love. In the decision phase, we give people a homework assignment. Are you willing to do no harm to the one who has hurt you? That is a very key feature because what it does is show the person that the, their pain is not going to get in the way of their doing something heroic. And it is heroic to do no harm to those who have harmed you. Notice at this point, we're not asking the person to do something positive, such as being generous or loving to the other. We're asking them to refrain from the negative and it helps the person stand on their own two feet and realize that they're stronger than they thought they were. 
Then we enter the work phase of forgiving, where we first start with thinking, because it's easier to think than to feel toward another person. And the thinking is basically to first see the other person who's hurt you in a much wider context than their action against us, because we tend to stereotype people by their actions. And when we forgive, we see that they're much broader than that. We try to see that person's own wounds, the person's own struggles, not to excuse, not to condone, but to see a fuller, richer human being. We then ask the one who forgives to see the inherent worth or built-in worth of the one who has hurt them. And that can take weeks or months, because what we're trying to say is, this person is a human being. And by being a human being, they, like you, are special, unique, and irreplaceable in this world. You both have un unique DNA. Both of you bleed when cut. Both need nutrition and good sleep. Both of you will die one day. You share a common humanity. Therefore, you share a specialness together. And then we have yet a more challenging, deeper view, depending on if a person has faith or not. Those who have no faith, we don't ask this question. But those who do, we ask, are you both made in the image and likeness of God? And a person of faith, depending on the particular faith, oftentimes answers yes to that. So that's the thinking side. When a person sees the true humanity in the other, there is a tendency then to soften the heart toward that person with a bit of empathy, stepping inside that other person's shoes, so to speak, and seeing that person's own struggles, that person's own weaknesses, the person's own challenges, the pain the other has, not to excuse, and oftentimes that can lead to a heart that is compassionate toward the other, a willing to suffer along with the other because of what the other has had to endure in life. And from that kind of emotion, only when the person is ready, we ask that person to bear the pain of what happened, where you don't throw it back to that person or don't displace your anger or discontent or sadness onto others who weren't the ones who hurt you. And as you stand in the pain or bear the pain, as you stand up to it, you realize you're stronger than you ever thought possible. And this is the beginning of healing. It's the transition to getting rid of the anger, anxiety, and depression when you can stand in the pain or bear the pain so you don't hurt the other person. And only when the person is then ready do we then ask the person in this work phase to exercise the moral virtue of forgiving. In this case, it's to give something to the other, a smile, a returned phone call, an email, a kind word to the family about the person. You can even forgive someone who is deceased by giving a good name in the family or donating to a charity in that person's name. And when you get to that point of the work phase, you are actually truly exercising the moral virtuous nature of forgiving by giving something good to the other. And that's when so much of the healing takes place. 
Then we have the discovery phase where we find meaning in what we've suffered. Viktor Frankl told us that. He was a psychiatrist in Auschwitz, the concentration camp. And he said he found two different kinds of people in the concentration camp who were the victims of atrocious injustice, those who found meaning in their suffering and those who did not find meaning in their suffering. And those who found meaning, for example, where they would not hurt other people, even though they were brutalized, where they realized that the suffering was making them stronger, where in his case, his meaning was to not let those who had the power over him destroy him so he could get back to his wife and the love of his wife. And that meaning, he said, kept him alive. And so when we suffer, finding meaning in that suffering, which can include, I'm learning from this, I'm becoming stronger, I'm becoming more sensitive to other people, it can make all the difference. In this discovery phase, we see that people develop a new purpose in life. So many of the people with whom we work in forgiveness therapy, when they forgive, when they stop this weight of the burden of injustice and the resentment against them. They tend to want to help other people with their pain. It becomes part of who they are in life, and they have a goal, an end point, what Aristotle would call a final cause of their life, which is to help reduce the pains of the world. And it's there at the end of the discovery phase, when we do our science of forgiveness therapy, that we see that people who do all of this and go through all of these phases of uncovering, of decision, of work, and of discovery, they surprisingly to themselves reduce statistically significantly in depression, in anxiety, in the kind of anger that was bringing them down. And in the positive psychology variables, they increase in self-esteem and hope for the future. We even did one study in Pakistan with people who were abused, women who were abused in relationships. And even one year after, after the forgiveness therapy, they still had hope. The control group that did not have forgiveness therapy were declining in hope after a year. And so forgiveness can make all the difference. And when we do follow-up studies, like the one in Pakistan, when we look at people, for example, the incest survivors a year later, their original development of non-depression stays their non-depressed status continues a year later. So forgiveness can stick with us. It's not necessarily a temporary fix where we then go back to what we call baseline level. Forgiveness can help us reclaim our lives. My colleague Everett Worthington uses a model that he calls the reach forgiveness model. We have, we have developed a model to help people who want to forgive 
people to forgive more effectively and, and perhaps faster than they might just on their own. Now, obviously, before science started to look at uh, forgiveness, people forgave successfully for thousands and thousands of years. So this is not... Uh, this is not rocket science, but this really helps us uh, if we want to forgive, to be able to forgive faster and more efficiently. Reach involves five key pieces. Remembering or recalling the hurt. Empathizing with the offender, something that you might not be real excited about doing, but is something that's very important in the forgiveness process giving what he calls an altruistic gift of forgiveness, committing to forgiveness, and holding on in the long term. Now, that's a great model. It's, it's been studied many times uh, and, and has a, a lot of good scientific evidence showing that it does indeed increase people's ability to forgive. So the first step is to recall the hurt. So, it, obviously, if I'm denying that this bothers me, I'm not going to forgive. I've got to face this head on, and so I want to recall the hurt, but I want to recall the hurt in a way that doesn't keep rehearsing it again and again in the same way, because, obviously, if it hasn't gotten better in the first 50 times of rehearsing this uh, event, it's not going to get better at trial 51. Now, think about the hurt, but try to think about it maybe more from the other person's perspective. E is empathize with the person who hurt you. And the reason that I want to do that is because I want to use that empathy to be able to emotionally replace that negative resentment and bitterness with a more positive emotion toward the person and understanding where they're coming from helps. Now, I could also replace that emotion with sympathy. You know, I might get to the place where I say, well, I, frankly, I can't empathize with this person. I can't understand how anybody could do something so terrible. But I can still feel sympathy for this person, that this person you know, I wish I could do something that, you know, help them. I can feel compassion for them. I might even feel some kind of non-possessive love uh, for them in a kind of altruistic way. So that second step, which is the step that most people spend the most time working with, is to emotionally replace the negative with the positive to empathize or sympathize or feel compassion or love for the person. So what happens then is we get to a third step that is to give an altruistic or an unselfish gift of forgiveness. It's altruistic because if a person hurts me, they don't deserve to be forgiven. This is a gift that I give to them. And so uh, you know, so I do this out of the goodness of my heart, not because they deserve to get this gift. And then I commit to the forgiveness that I experienced. So I am able to say I have, you know, 
gotten rid of 90% of my negative feelings toward this person. And the reason I do that is so that it will help me hold on to this forgiveness whenever I doubt that I've forgiven. So this model, once we've learned it, is something that people can um, use again and again to deepen the amount of forgiveness they have or to apply to all kinds of new events in their life. Likewise, my colleague Frederick Luskin uses something he calls the forgive for good model. And the forgive for good model uh, has some really key aspects to it. One is you have to understand what forgiveness is. A lot of times people get forgiveness confused with justice and they say, hey, if I forgive someone, then I'm really just letting them off the hook. And that's not really the way we think about forgiveness. Others might say, hey, if I forgive with someone, I've got to be best friends with them again. And that's not at all what we're saying. You don't have to reconcile with someone. That's an interpersonal experience, and that's not necessarily part of the forgiveness experience. Um, in the Forgive for Good model, you also uh, need to focus on uh, perspective and understanding that uh, sometimes you might want to blame other people for the hurt that they've caused you, but we need to understand that really it's, it's us who are in charge of our emotions. Um, so we have control over how we feel, not other people. Um, oftentimes we want to maybe feel upset and we almost kind of enjoy that oddly kind of start to enjoy that feeling of superiority like you know this person who hurt me owes me one um, and that's a difficult thing to get around in the forgive for good model we talk a lot about uh, perceptions of control uh, we're talking about a lot about gratitude um, and the ability to kind of get past and, and refocus uh, away from those um, negative perspectives and those negative emotions and another really key part of the forgive for good model is the idea that uh, forgiveness really brings up lots of negative emotional reactions. There's anger and resentment and motivations for revenge and all of these things kind of stir up the human stress response that is just not supportive of a more positively oriented way of thinking and feeling that forgiveness is. And so the Forgive for Good model uh, tends to focus on some uh, relaxation and, and uh, kind of meditative practices to bring you around to a state that's actually uh, supportive and um, something that facilitates forgiveness instead of impeding it. There are many ways to express your forgiveness, even if you don't verbalize it to the other person. Love is the best medicine for hurt and anger. You can sit in meditation and then send love and forgiveness to the person who needs your forgiveness. Visualizing your transgressors, seeking your forgiveness, and you granting it can help you generate the feelings of forgiveness. Keep in mind, though, that even when authentic forgiveness has happened, nothing will necessarily have changed in the physical dimension. Your boss will still be your boss. Your mate will still be your mate. A person who betrayed or abandoned you will still be gone. And so on but you will feel inner freedom and tranquility. 
And if this person is still a part of your life, don't be surprised if how they treat you changes for the better or that one day they magically slide out of your life. This is a world of cause and effect and what you'd have done by applying the forgiveness process is set new cause into motion. That means there will be some effect in your human experience in response to that cause. The beautiful thing is, the memory of what happened will no longer haunt you. You'll never be triggered to relive it again as if it were happening right now, and you'll never recreate that same lesson delivered by somebody else because the lesson is already learned. When it comes to forgiveness, forgiving oneself is the hardest. When somebody else hurts me, I feel like a legitimate victim. But if I've hurt myself, I feel like, well, I'm kind of the victim, but I'm also the wrongdoer. And so I'm, I'm working from these two roles at once. So some people feel it's a lot harder to forgive themselves than it is to forgive other people. If you notice an emotional change whenever you recall an incident where you might have hurt someone, made a regretful decision, or failed to do something you promised to do, then it's a sign that you have to practice self-forgiveness. Most people don't forgive because life hasn't given them what they want. You have to shift the narrative a little to, well, what do I owe life? Or what is life asking of me? And life is asking of me to move on. But as long as we're stuck in the consciousness of what do I expect from life, we can stay bitter forever. Whatever we've done, it's because of uncomfortable feelings that we have. Something painful inside of us, some fear, some uncomfortable feeling has driven us to make bad choices and take action that we regret. And really the best way to handle that is to give ourselves permission to think more clearly, treat ourselves with more love, and then we will tend to make better choices and do better things and treat other people better. When, when you want to, though, legitimately forgive yourself for something where you know you've harmed somebody else and yourself, you want to separate into a couple of components. One is you need to be really honest with yourself about what you did. So no, so no BS kumbaya, I didn't really mean it. You did bad. Second, you want to make amends if you can and apologize. So self-forgiveness is not just about how you feel, but what you do. It's like the 12-step programs. The, <clears throat> the key step is, you know, do a fearless inventory of your flaws and make amends wherever you can. That's the core of self-forgiveness. It's who cares how you feel about yourself. I mean, that doesn't matter very much. If you were unkind, be kind. You know what I mean? If, if you harmed yourself, make it right. Go to therapy so you don't have to do it again. Then the last piece, though, is include then, once you've, you know, like owned what you did and made some amends, then you open up to the fact that you, like everybody else, are not perfect. 
You do a lot of good stuff. You do some not so good stuff. You're like everybody else, a package. And that's when you can forgive yourself. You don't ignore the harm you did. You acknowledge it. You try to make it right. You open up to a fuller picture of yourself and then you let it go. You don't need to beat yourself up for 20 years. Forgiving yourself for the ways you have hurt or harmed others will probably be the hardest thing that you will ever have to do in order to heal your shame and guilt. But self-forgiveness can become a milestone in your life to rid yourself of debilitating shame and guilt, especially if you have experienced abuse. If you were abused as a child and then repeated the cycle of abuse with your own children, it is vital that you gain some self-understanding about this. An important step in self-forgiveness is becoming accountable for one's own actions and taking 100% responsibility for your life. Blaming others will shift the responsibility of fixing your problem to others. The truth is that others are not committed to fix your problem. Blaming oneself will not let you fix your problem either because you are dwelling in the victimhood of helplessness when you are blaming yourself. Self-forgiveness comes from a place of self-understanding and self-acceptance. Humans make mistakes. Humans can also correct their mistakes. You are human and need to fix your problem. You take the decision to forgive yourself. You cultivate self-compassion and self-kindness to pardon your past stupid self. You accept yourself as who you are with all the flaws, as a big part of your individuality, just like your talents and strengths. You need to release your past emotions of hurt, shame, guilt, betrayal that are sabotaging you mentally, emotionally, and physically if you want to experience your wholeness again. Self-forgiveness is another form of forgiving, and it's controversial. Some people say you cannot self-forgive because you cannot, for example, play God and forgive your own sins, but that's not what self-forgiveness is. You can have moral virtues toward yourself, such as being kind toward yourself, such as being loving and patient toward yourself. And so why can't you then forgive yourself when you have broken your own moral standards? It's consistent with being a virtuous person toward yourself. But self-forgiveness is a little different than forgiving others in this sense. Usually when you've broken your own standard, you've hurt other people as well as yourself. So when you self-forgive, it's oftentimes appropriate and necessary to go to other people whom you have hurt by your own actions and seek forgiveness from that person or these other people. When you're asking other people for forgiveness, I'd like to call that more of an apology. I mean, other people could grant forgiveness on you or not, but you're asking for forgiveness is centering yourself a little bit. And so you really want to, if you've hurt somebody or think you've hurt somebody, then you want to apologize. So the focus is not trying to get someone to forgive you. The focus is centering them. And so apologizing, acknowledging what you did and how it might have hurt them and the consequences of that. Because you want to restore that integrity. You want to acknowledge, not like, I'm sorry you felt bad. Don't do that. You want to say, I'm sorry I did this because I could imagine how it must have hurt and you didn't deserve that at all. And I, I, I wish I could take it back and do it again. Um, but I'm very, very, very sorry. So the other person is centered, not you. 
because you're explaining what you think of the consequences to them are of what happened. And that's how that works. So when you self-forgive, you are welcoming yourself back into the human community. You are seeing that you have an inherent worth that should not be taken away from you because of your actions. And you try to be kind to yourself when you self-forgive. But you don't leave it there. You then go to others and you seek forgiveness from them. Um, one model that I want to talk a little bit about is a model that we developed a few years ago um, that we have tested and does indeed help people uh, to feel more self-forgiveness. Uh, this model uh, starts with um, the ABCs of self-forgiveness. A stands for acceptance, and uh, a big part of the challenge in self-forgiveness is simply coming to the realization that you have done something wrong and there's nothing you can do about it now. That forgiveness is often about something that has happened in the past. In fact, it's most often something about what's happened in the past. So you have to come to the realization that you have done something wrong, and you have to accept that. That's a really difficult thing to do. Um, it's part of our common humanity, however, that we have to do it. We're all broken, feeble, imperfect, hurtful people. We, we do things that sometimes we don't intend to hurt people, but we do. Um, for that reason, we have to accept those things uh, when we do them, and we have to own up to it and try to move forward. Now, the, the first question that usually follows when I say uh, you have to accept that you've done something wrong, um, the next question that people often ask is, well, okay, but then what? I know I did something wrong. I've accepted that. In fact, maybe for some of us, the reality of that is all too real. Um, the next step is, if possible, find some way to learn a lesson from the, from the wrongdoing that has taken place. And that is to say, don't make the same mistakes twice. Uh, no one likes to hear an apology knowing that the same hurt is likely to happen again. What, uh, what people want to hear is something like, I have done something horribly wrong, I'm really sorry, and I'm going to really try not to ever do that again. Essentially what you're investing in here is something that we call self-improvement or finding some way to benefit from this um, experience. What lesson can you learn that will make you a better person, make you less likely to hurt people again in the future? So we think of the B in the ABCs as being uh, a way of benefit finding, finding something that is positive to take from this experience that seems not very positive and probably quite hopeless. Uh, the third step, the third piece of the ABCs is commitment. And commitment is really about emphasizing the fact that when you do something wrong, you behave in a way that is, is not real laudable. Um, you decide to try to learn a lesson from this and make some kind of change, and that's a good thing. But unfortunately, change is easier than um, continued change. 
And by that I mean that it's easy to make changes momentarily. To say that you don't want to hurt someone again in some way is an easy thing to come to after you might realize that you've hurt people in, in a very significant way. Um, the difficulty is in maintaining that. And so the, the challenge, the third part of our model is commitment to change. Because without it, you've really just, you know, kind of paid lip service to the fact that you're going to try to do better in the future, and you haven't really committed to being a changed person. So don't just, you know, don't just suggest that you're going to try to do better. Actually do it and continue to do it. Um, a real notable and, and uh, salient example would be, uh, say, someone who struggles with substance abuse who finally accepts that it is a problem, that they have maybe hurt people as a result of this, they find some way to learn a lesson about their experience with substances and, and their abuse. And then they turn to uh, a real firm commitment, um, one in which they might even end up eventually becoming a sponsor, someone who tries to share their own wisdom and their, their lessons that they've learned in, in oftentimes very hard ways with other people. Uh, this is a process of forgiveness that I might suggest is, is a moral one, uh, a right process to follow, because it emphasizes the understanding that you've done wrong, it emphasizes the importance of change and the commitment to that change. Contrast that with what you might call uh, cheap grace, or uh, superficial self-forgiveness. Um, these might be experiences in which you simply forgive yourself because you don't, you're feeling very uncomfortable and distressed about what you did, but really that's a narcissistic response and one that is not very productive or helpful in any way. We suggest people to journal, meditate, visualize, and become aware of the changes while working on this process. People commonly use journaling or, or diary writing as a way to kind of release emotional feelings and kind of process some of the events of the day. It turns out that that has been shown to be an effective method of helping with forgiveness. Um, other people who are more spiritual or religious might rely on things like meditation or prayer. Um, in both cases, these practices have a, a, a relaxing effect. They, they tend to kind of cut the stress of the day. Um, they tend to improve our perspective on the world, help us to see things in a little bit better light. A couple of other things that I would encourage on a day-to-day -day basis is the notion of assertiveness. Um, assertive people are people who uh, quite plainly say what they need. They let other people know what their boundaries are. And, um, and for that reason, they tend to maybe struggle a little less with um, being offended and being hurt by other people um, because other people know um, what they can and cannot expect from them. Likewise, um, assertive people uh, have very clear boundaries and they understand um, what, what they can expect from others and so they may not end up hurting other people as often either. There are many additional tools and practices created by many individuals through their or others' experience. Emotional freedom technique tapping is extremely useful for forgiving self and others. We all hold negative energy in the form of thoughts. 
beliefs, emotions, and memories about someone or something. We store these emotional energy in our meridian points. Tapping is a process that can unblock the stuck mental, emotional, or psychological discomfort caused by blocked energy. This tapping process that we're using, EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques, based on the original form called Thought Field Therapy, or TFT, is based on acupuncture. So for thousands of years in Chinese medicine, they have said there's this flow of energy through the body along these pathways called meridians that run up and down the body. And when this energy is flowing naturally, we experience our natural state of health and well-being, physically and emotionally. And then when something happens to disturb this energy or get it stuck, we don't think so well, we don't feel so good, and that uh, causes us to make poor choices. <laughs> so we want to get that energy flowing naturally. So in traditional Chinese medicine, the doctor would stick these needles in key points around the body to stimulate that healthy flow of energy. And we're just using our fingertips to tap on these points. It gets the energy flowing, we feel better, we think better, and we make better choices. Now we also have modern research showing that this is an effective stress relief tool. We have studies that have been done on cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones, and the groups, and it's been done in double-blind, gold-standard research, the groups using the tapping, their cortisol levels have dropped by a dramatic amount, some as much as 50%. In fact, in one study, the lab technicians threw out the first batch of results because they said they couldn't have been that effective, recalibrated the machines, ran it again, and found out that, in fact, the tapping had been that effective in lowering people's cortisol levels which is a way of measuring that their stress has come down. Uh, my friend Dr. Peter Stapleton has done fMRI studies where you can see brain scans and you can see the parts of the brain that are lighting up from stress and how those parts normalize after the tapping. So we have a growing body of scientific evidence validating the effectiveness of this process for relieving stress. And if we thought of tapping as nothing more than stress relief, you can still see how it's so effective in so many areas of our lives because most, if not all, of the issues that trouble us are either caused by or at least worsened by stress. So as we lower the stress, we allow ourselves to feel better. So in particular, in the realm of forgiveness and resentment and betrayal and things like that, all those uncomfortable feelings that's a, that's a stress response when we have those uncomfortable emotions, particularly when we think about the uncomfortable thoughts behind them, like, well, apparently I don't deserve any better, or I can never be truly loved or respected, and things like that, which are all misunderstandings based on all kinds of different circumstances, but it's not the truth. And as you tap, you can let go of the stress around that and start to be more reasonable with yourself, think more clearly, and recognize the truth that you are worthy and deserving of love even from yourself. There's a growing body of evidence to suggest that EFT and tapping techniques can help a whole multitude of problems, including forgiving yourself, forgiving other people, self-loathing, and any number of problems, emotional human problems that we get. And why does this happen? Well, when we're tapping on these meridian points, and it's the same in acupuncture where they use needles instead of the fingertips for tapping, for the meridian points. It has an effect on the limbic system and on the amygdala of reducing arousal. 
And this brings us out of our stressed or fight or flight response. We have less adrenaline and we can suddenly see things more clearly. When we're experiencing stress and pain and anger and fear and all these other uncomfortable feelings, our prefrontal cortex, our more critical, clever, clear thinking part of our brain kind of goes offline. It shuts down and we don't think very clearly. So when we're in those feelings, it's very difficult for us to make the best choices. So with this process of tapping, as we calm down that stress response, we allow our critical mind to come back online, think more clearly and look at what we really want to do. What are the best choices that we can make? How can I move to this place of forgiveness? By tapping on specific meridian points on the body and speaking aloud the thoughts and feelings that we hold, we can stimulate and clear the systems in our body that store blocked energy. When I'm working with a client on an issue like this, if there's something that they've done that they're trying to forgive themselves for, whether it's a harm they've done to themselves or to someone else, I'll ask them to first check in. Generally, I'll say, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And then check in with what you're feeling inside because we so often try to just think our feelings. <laughs> what am I thinking? And just doing it in talking about it. And I like to ask people to go inside and feel where in their body they are resisting forgiveness. And I always try to do it from a compassionate standpoint. I like to say that self-sabotage is simply misguided self-love. So even the pain of depriving ourselves of forgiveness is an act of self-love because there's a part of us that says it's necessary. It is necessary in order to be a good person. It is necessary in order to be acceptable. So having the person close their eyes and go inside and see where that feeling is and looking at why do I feel I need to hold on to this anger towards myself, this resentment or towards another person. Knowing where in your body it is, on a scale of zero to 10, how strong is it? And then we'll start doing the tapping with whatever wording is coming up. Maybe it is a feeling of, well, I need to punish myself. I can't feel better until I've sufficiently punished myself. Or if I allow myself to forgive myself, I'll probably go and do it again. So I would have them tapping on, even though I need to punish myself, or even though I'm afraid that if I forgive myself, I'll go do more harm. And then we'll tap through on those phrases and exploring what the different beliefs might be behind that and why we might feel that we need to hang on to that resentment, that anger, that self-punishment. And as we allow ourselves to clear out the stress around that, we start to find how, wow, actually, you know, setting myself free and loving myself is probably the best course and is going to lead me to much better action. Using tapping for self-forgiveness can take many different forms and approaches, depending on what the symptoms are, depending on the approach of the practitioner and of what's going on for the client. But generally speaking, the suggestion from Sylvia Hartman is always to start with de-stressing, no matter what the problem is. So you can rate your stress levels on a scale and then start to look at de-stressing because if you're very, very stressed, it's hard to get to the issue anyway. So if you start by lowering stress levels, and that could be done with a very simple round 
of choosing a phrase or word that you find calming. So for some people it might be the word peace or relax or calm or it might even be a colour. You can be very, very creative with tapping and modern energy tapping. So you can choose the word or phrase that really works for you and really hits the nail on the head. So starting off the session with de-stressing and then you might look at what sort of symptoms the client is experiencing. So if they need to forgive their, themselves, is it that their thoughts are in a loop and they're constantly going over something they've done wrong? And if so, what way is this impacting on their life? And bringing it back to the words and phrases again. So it's a type of brainstorming. So if you can get to the crooks of what the person is saying to themselves, either consciously or in the subconscious mind, which can come up through when you're doing the tapping, you can access the subconscious mind more easily because you're more in a more relaxed state and you start to become aware of those things that are hidden or more deeply buried in a nice relaxing and safe way. In working with someone who has been hurt or betrayed by someone else, I would again have them close their eyes, take a deep breath, check inside and notice where they're feeling at first. Notice how intense that is and on a scale of 0 to 10 how strong that might be. And then I'd ask them to see what kind of beliefs are coming up around that. What is the thought behind the uncomfortable feeling? That I'm not worthy of love, that I'm not worthy of respect, whatever it might be. Because when we're upset about something, it's generally about us. If someone is a jerk, well, we don't like that, but it doesn't cause us a lot of pain unless it's towards us and we feel that it means something about us. So I'd look, uh, look at where that belief is about why we need to hang on to that pain. And so it might look something like this, asking that person to be aware of how, where that pain is, where they feel it in their body, and on a scale of 0 to 10, how strong that is. And then we do this. Even though I've been hurt, I choose to love and accept myself. Even though I've been hurt, I choose to love and honor myself. Even though I've been hurt, and it's really painful, and it brings up a lot of beliefs, and a lot of uncomfortable thoughts, And even though I've been hurt, I choose to deeply and completely love, honor, and accept myself. And maybe other people involved in this, because I choose to be that free. All these hurt feelings all this pain of being betrayed, all this fear about what that means about me. When this person betrayed me, what are they saying about me? It feels like they're telling me that I'm not good enough.
that I'm not worthy and deserving of respect. That I'm not worthy and deserving of love. And it's really painful to hear that. And part of my mind says, that's the only possible explanation for their behavior. That I don't deserve better. And I choose to clear that nonsense. This isn't about me. This is about them. And it's painful. And I'm honoring my feelings. Because I do deserve to be treated with love and respect. And so I'm treating myself with love and respect by honoring my feelings. I'm also giving myself permission to process them. Because I don't want to stay in this painful place. I choose to heal. part of me might say, that's going to lead to forgiveness. And they don't deserve to be forgiven. I need to be angry. I should be angry. And I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be at peace, too. And I don't have to rush that. But I don't have to stay in pain for a long time. And why would I want to? Maybe I believe it'll teach the other person a lesson. Sure, I'll have to suffer in the process, but at least I know it'll cause them pain too. And actually, I don't know that. And maybe part of me says, I need to stay in pain to teach myself a lesson. If I make this good and painful, I'll find a way to protect myself from it happening again. And I choose to clear that belief. I don't need to stay in pain to protect myself. I can make better and better choices without having to be in pain. I'm honoring my feelings and I'm giving myself permission to process them because I do deserve to be treated better. And I'm going to show people that I deserve to be treated better by treating myself better.
by allowing myself to feel love for myself. Because I really do deserve that. Allowing myself to move towards peace. In body, mind, and spirit. Take a deep breath. And then I would ask the client to then close their eyes and check in again and see where that pain was and if it's still at the same level. It pretty much always comes down to some extent. Maybe it's a lot. Sometimes the processing happens really quickly and sometimes it's more gradual. And it's often like peeling the layers of an onion and we get more awareness of what else might be behind it. So the pain that the person is feeling might be partially about this particular act of betrayal, but it might be triggering old upsets that have been there for decades that they haven't fully processed. And so this is an opportunity to do years of healing work. And then we just keep moving through and find, okay, now where's the upset? Now what's the upsetting thought, the upsetting belief? And we keep working through that until we get greater and greater levels of peace. You can release long-held or toxic memories through the process of tapping and open up your energy centers so that you can attract more of what you desire instead of staying stuck in what you already have. Ho'oponopono. Another healing concept we're trying is a Hawaiian practice of forgiveness called Ho'oponopono. Ho'oponopono has been defined as a forgiveness and reconciliation practice. It's the cleansing of errors of thought, which is the origin of problems and sickness in the physical world, according to the Hawaiian worldview. There are four simple steps to this method. Repentance, forgiveness, gratitude, and love. After acknowledging everyone's feelings, you end the prayer with these words. I'm sorry. I love you. Please forgive me. I thank you. It is believed that the resonance of these four words created harmony and balance. It allows the conflict you are currently facing to be released and the energy to change when there are surrounding issues. Forgiveness Letter Writing a forgiveness letter is another effective way to seek forgiveness and cleanse your heart from shame and regrets. Once you identify that you need forgiveness from someone, you write them a letter and need not give it to them. You can also write a forgiveness letter to someone who has wronged you. Understand that the letter may not erase your hurt instantly, but over time, with awareness of this hurt and your continued work on releasing negative emotions, the pain will become less and less. A letter can end with these words. I forgive any and all judgments you have held about me or against me. All is clear between us now. I forgive you. We are both free to live our lives as divine expressions of our Creator. I bless you and I release you. I bless myself and I claim my freedom. You don't need to send your forgiveness letter to anyone. It is for your eyes only. After writing, you can destroy the letter. It is a symbolic expression of what you feel and this process helps you to get resentment out of your system. Loving Kindness Meditation Another way to practice forgiveness is through the traditional Buddhist practice, which is loving-kindness meditation. 
Before beginning the meditation practice of sending loving-kindness to all beings, we first silently ask forgiveness of anyone we may have harmed, intentionally or unintentionally. Even this basic gesture of asking forgiveness softens our heart. We can further open to the possibility of being forgiven by reflecting on specific people we may have harmed and silently asking their forgiveness. During loving-kindness meditation, you focus benevolent and loving energy toward yourself and others. When something bad happens to you, you feel a lot of like energy about it. It affects like your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, like everything. You know, trauma affects all of us. And so we feel that hurt. And that is a regular appropriate human reaction to feel that hurt when something happens to us. And so when you forgive, what do you do with that hurt? And the answer is that that hurt must be validated, right? So the trauma took away a sense of worth, right? You were treated like you were unworthy. That disrespect, uh, being betrayed, being violated is being treated like you're unworthy. And if you're treated like you're unworthy, it diminishes your sense of worth. And so to, to respond and to heal, you have to lift up your sense of worth again. And that's where self-compassion comes in because that's exactly what self-compassion is. It's validating you validating your feelings validating that it wasn't okay validating you know that you're a good person all of those things that's what self-compassion is and it really relieves you because your negative self-judgments attach you to an energy and an emotion and when you have compassion you don't attach to it when you have compassion it's the opposite of negative self-judgments so you can have negative self-judgments or you could have compassion when you have compassion you heal and you're unattached that's how you let it go Because it seems to me that at the end of the day, we are at a crossroads in life where we can leave a legacy of our own bitterness to our family or a legacy of love to our family. If we can persist in forgiving, where we can develop more kind hearts, generous hearts, and even loving hearts, and we can pass this to our children, the children may in fact pass that to their own children who may pass it to their own children and the love you leave in this world the legacy of your love could be alive and well a hundred years from now when you're long gone you will have left something of great importance in this world when you persist in your forgiving and give that to your own offspring your own partner, your own family, your own loved ones. Because you see, love literally never dies. Love continues. Think for a moment of something that your mother did for you when you were five years old, when you were hurt and maybe she hugged you and rocked you. That's still with you now when I bring that up. That love is alive. And the kind of love that you have now can indeed be given to your children so it's alive in them. 
and so your love will never die. And that's something to keep in mind when you are even at the crossroads of forgiving or not. Should I continue to shake my fist at those who've treated me unjustly? Should I continue to shake my fist at the world? Will the world be better off and will you be better off with the clenched fist? Maybe you can open that fist with a hand that says, come up out of the pit of destruction. Come out of that pit and join me equally as human beings, where we can actually mend together that which was broken so we can live together in harmony. And I know of nothing in this world that can help us to mend that which is broken in relationships than forgiveness. In our life, we need to seek and serve forgiveness to others. An unforgiving heart is heavy with the burdens of the past hurts and resentment. To feel emotionally lighter again, you need to unload the burdens you have been carrying all through your life. The heaviest burden you carry are the regrets of your past. Your past may not be kind to you, but you need to forgive your past decisions, past choices, actions, and consequences that have hurt you deeply. Instead of living with shame and regrets, you need to let go of the past. The only true way to create a more loving, productive, and fulfilling life is by forgiving the past. Releasing the past restores us to the full energy of the present moment. Everything we do and experience in life is born from the energy we carry. People and experiences show up in response to the conscious and unconscious energetic invitations we issue. If you want a different future, you need to let go of the past. Remember the past does not equal the future. Begin a new journey by forgiving yourself and others. Well, it seems an evolutionary thing Before I could freely dance or sing And stop dragging all that weight around And to be gifted with a peaceful sound I didn't know you at all You drained me half my life, you know There in every waking moment What made me let you go That wicked corroding thread Was woven subtly in my head Through weave the narrow peaceless thoughts And the unreal battles Daily fault 